evening. Welcome to Hope This Helps, your IT sysadmin podcast. My name is Steve. And I'm Tiffany. We are absolutely whelmed to have you along again on this 10th of August, 2020, on this insanely hot, hot night. It is 84 degrees, 28 degrees Celsius. If you were a computer, you would be very comfortable, but we are human computers. We are very uncomfortable, and we are doing a podcast anyway because we are insane. Something like that. At least that's what I'm told on the daily being insane people, we are sysadmins, so we do this all the time. We're not strangers to this in any capacity whatsoever. It blows people's minds when I tell them it's literally written in the job description. You have to be a qualified insane person, at least to a some degree. Keep it legal. Yes, keep it legal. That is very key. <laughs> yes. Anyways, let's boot up. Let's get right to the topics. We have plenty yes. of stuff to talk about tonight. Tons of corrections, little mini security articles, small and big topics, and all sorts of things along the way, depending on where we stop and go. Let's get to the humble topics first. Let's get to corrections from a couple episodes ago. Back in Help This Helps episode 20, we spoke about Windows Admin Center, and some things were said righteously, and some things were said incorrectly. One particular incorrect thing stated was something I stated in which adding a group to the local administrators did not work. I would like to state that it now works. Whoa! Perhaps it worked at the time. I discovered there is a particular syntax to adding a group to the local ad local administrators on a server. When you're adding a user, you enter the group in the syntax of domain name whack group name, and that will successfully add a group to the local administrators on a server in Windows Admin Center. Woo! Look at you, fixing yourself. Apologies on the misdirection of that episode, but legitimately when I was researching that topic at the time, I was unable to accomplish it, and it wasn't really super clear in the GUI, at least at the time, again. But with some research and some playing around, the correct solution has been discovered, and the functionality is there. Secondly, the shared connections pane does now load in Firefox, oh. which is nice, because browser exclusivity is not good, ever. No. Ungood. Very ungood. So shared connections now loads in Firefox, presumably other browsers as well. I didn't test it, but I'm sure they all work in Chromium and Edge as you do. Those are the Windows Admin Center corrections from Hope This Helps episode 20. Thanks, Steve. Anytime. I'm really glad that you're all about perfecting yourself and being awesome. We try to be at least accurate at Hope This Helps whenever we can, and we're not, we'll get back to you. Exactly. So I'm really excited about this next one because instead of you having to be salty about Teams, someone else did it for you. Microsoft was salty for me in the form of yeah. Teams logs. All the Teams logs. I'm also noticing that all these comments on the Reddit page is just like one line of a lot of like ASCII characters, but in boobs. I'm trying to be like PG here, but I'm like, there's no way that I can not say this out loud. It looks like it's trying to be regular expressions or some kind of coded message, but yeah, I guess it looks like boobs, doesn't it? It looks like boobs. I mean, I don't know how else to say, 
but I know what you're saying. So for the folks at home, the team's installation logs are really humorous. Whoever wrote them had a quote-unquote sense of humor. Uh, for certain examples... Very rare. ...with such lovely messages like, Teams already exist, burning it to the ground. Couldn't write out staging user ID. The user probably shouldn't get beta anything. And is the app still running? And the other highlight was... Please contact the Guinness Book of World Records and then contact our administrators to set up your account, followed by an exit command. <laughs> so good. So if you're ever installing Teams and you're troubleshooting, you're going to be in for a treat when you check those logs because those are funny. They are pretty good. Definitely worth a good, I would call them like coffee table reads or uh, bathroom reading material. You know, the normal stuff. I would print it out and just leave it on a coffee table in a waiting room, maybe in a Microsoft office. Or like at the doctor's office. People are like, what is this? Here's some nice light reading for you and it will make you smile. Yes. And then you'll also go to the comments section of Reddit where you'll find regular expressions that create images of things. Indeed. Indeed. Indubitably. So there's your weekly team salt. It is not coming from me. I'm sorry to break the streak, but Microsoft did it for me this week. Wait, do you have any salt this week for teams? Not for Teams. Actually, I don't think I have anything for Microsoft this week, believe it or not. No, it's been a quiet Microsoft week, which is rare. I also have another follow-up from last week. It is not a correction, but just a update in the news item regarding the KeePass RPC plugin security issue and patch from about a week and a half ago. There has been yet another update to the plugin released. However, it is not as severe. It is simply a minor update to the plugin, and it will give you some warning if you have been previously compromised or there's some kind of proactive protection in there so it is not it doesn't necessarily patch the vulnerability any further it just is more of a bug fix and early warning system built into this updated plugin available at the same github repository as the previous one effectively yay yay yeah i don't for some reason i just like blacked out for a real hot second it was almost like my network connection in my brain just shut off it's fine that was yeah, it was like I booted down. You know, like I said, the weather is kind of warm, so for a little yeah. slow, it's probably because our mental hard drives are too melty right now. Yes, I just had a B-sod. Like a- Ooh, that was a fast boot time for a B-sod. Yeah, a blue screen of death moment. Um, wow. Process has just died. <laughs> that was, that's what it said. Process died. Page fault in non-paged area. Yeah, yeah. nope. Paging file full. Uh- Anyways. Speaking of paging file full. Wait, what? Really? Did I? You came up with a good transition. transition well by accident? It was by accidentally good enough. Wow. So this is kind of filed under stating the obvious, but the FBI has issued a statement that you should really, really, really get off Windows 7 if you haven't already. We are roughly 6.9-ish months past the final mainstream support end-of-life date for Windows 7 and Server 2008 R2, and the FBI has observed cyber criminals targeting computer network infrastructure, and in particular, this is discussing Windows 7. And particularly, it has to do with RDP and unprotected ports exposed to the internet with Windows 7, as Windows 7 is no longer receiving patches. Ouch. 
Ouch, indeed. Aside from stating the obvious, this is kind of, if you have Windows 7, please secure it, get it behind VPNs, get it behind firewalls, close up ports, definitely ensure RDP is not exposed to the internet and it is locked down, restricted, firewalled, ACL'd, whatever you have to do to secure your Windows 7 obsolete systems now, you need to make sure you do it. Secure those systems. Yeah, for real. And honestly, you shouldn't even be using Windows 7. Gonna get real judgmental and preachy on everyone right now. Everyone had plenty warning. Um, Usually in healthcare, that's usually where the operating system support kind of falls short the most. If you must keep Windows 7 around, secure it. If not, please try to get off it, move to a newer, more supported operating system, be it Windows 10 or Linux or whichever works best for your infrastructure. Don't have it at all. But at the same time, who, who who really cares because we have problems at the Intel level. There has been a very massive Intel IP data breach in the past week and a half where mm. it has really opened up all the skeletons in Intel's proverbial closet over the past maybe five to ten years. It kind of exposes what we kind of been getting in a trickle feed via public news that Intel has been falling behind in its development and not only that, the backdoors and security vulnerabilities, particularly the Intel management engine have been piling up and this affects a lot more infrastructure regardless of the operating system. This is more at the hardware level. This is server, client, what have you. Intel is in a really bad place right now and it only seems to be getting worse. It's interesting that this is happening because it kind of lines up with Apple's move to move away from the Intel chips. Yes, Apple's move actually makes a lot of sense now. Mm-hmm. It's possible they had this insider info prior. Not only was the nanometer process being delayed year over year by Intel, but now that we know that the Intel management engine has been having issues and lots of backdoors or what have you have been discovered or being actively um, maybe not exploited but documented it's putting intel between a rock and a hard place yeah so i mean what we're trying to say is that you've been paying a premium for really terrible hardware yeah it's a little surprising how stagnant to nearly bad intel has gotten in the past couple of years it really is the principle of Moore's Law with Intel has really been diminishing and within, I want to say, from about 2014 to about now. The last mm-hmm. real good refresh of the Intel hardware line was probably back after Ivy Bridge. Was it Skylake, I think? It might have been Skylake. Yes, you had Sandy Bridge, which was a huge, substantial, major Intel hardware breakthrough that Apple jumped on board with the MacBooks at the time. Yes, because they had the like the double threading. You can correct me if I'm wrong with my terminology. I'm not a super hardware guru, but that was a multi-threading when they released it in the MacBook Pro because it was a huge deal, and it was actually pretty awesome. I believe Turbo Boost was really coming into mm-hmm. coming into its own at the time, and the and the graphic angle of Sandy yes. of uh, Intel was doing really well yes. around that time. So I think you're right. I think it was Ivy Bridge, Sandy Bridge, and then Skylake, I think. Yeah, after Ivy Bridge, it gets foggy to me because I either was paying attention to it less or Intel was publicizing it less. Historically, as you've been looking at their progress, it's been diminishing and each generation has been yielding 
fewer and fewer benefits over time. Yeah. Now I totally don't even know anymore what they are. Their roadmap has been delayed time and again. And with the most recent quarterly update from Intel, they stated that they may need to start outsourcing their fabrication, I believe. That was the correct terminology. It really doesn't sound good. No. Okay. So for those of us who are interested in the origins, it was Nihilim. That was the uh, 2008 architecture and then it was sandy bridge that was 2011 i remember that one pretty well yep sandy bridge was a big one and then ivy bridge and then here's the one i forgot about haswell because i don't think that one was very important at all yes i think haswell was like a minor update it was a talk cycle i believe but Mm -hmm. i think i think some things got kind of knocked out of it and it ended up becoming a much more minor release i feel like i missed one okay and then it was broadwell and then skylake okay that makes sense skylake was supposed to be a big one because everyone made a big deal about oh the macbook pro is getting the skylake the skylake chip because i think it skipped over broadwell almost entirely yes haswell i forgot about because i don't think anyone cares if you want to go out and see these leaks for yourself they've been put into password protected zips that were from intel servers with the password intel123 with a capital or lowercase i at the beginning and this was not set by the leakers this was set by intel themselves real good password security there love it microsoft what do we have this week they've had enough of the apps are they going rebel rebel without a cause or do they have a cause i don't know if they're going rebel but they are pissed at apple and it's high time that someone you know continues to kind of pull the strings on apple with microsoft's xcloud gaming service it's kind of like what on live was you pay a subscription fee to basically have the ability to stream any game service to whatever device you want small as a phone it doesn't have to be as powerful as an xbox you can receive the same games that the xbox series x or whatever will be receiving but on your little tiny phone as long as you connect a bluetooth controller to it however apple struck down the beta right when they were just Ooh. ramping up the announcement of xcloud with their big summer gaming event of the year and apple basically struck it down stating the games are not owned or distributed by apple therefore they violate our app store policies and that really upset microsoft quite a bit so in a previous hope this helps we were discussing the issues with the app store and how microsoft has already mostly had it with apple's app store policies particularly when it comes to office and subscription fees and the strange loopholes it has to jump through xcloud was just strike two or maybe strike three against apple microsoft just put out a big statement kind of just railing against Apple saying this things need to change you can't just go on like this where you favor your own inferior platform Apple Arcade and shutting out competitors this conveniently lines up with the antitrust hearings that were going on it does make sense that Microsoft would feel this way because I do remember when the App Store first came out and there was this whole this topic was exactly what developers were complaining about eventually happening this was the very topic of this convoluted process that really weeds out other competitors at that time though the individual ecosystems were very popular if you were on an an iphone you were going to have a mac you were going to have an ipad but microsoft has really worked very hard at breaking that along with android i can't just say microsoft but the whole android platform has really busted through that whole ecosystem mind frame of keeping to one service and now that microsoft or apple is saying nope we can't let anybody 
have anything else. It sort of is going against, I think, what the core values of Apple are. It also goes against literally what Tim Cook said during the yes. trust hearing where he said, we want all apps in the App Store. Oh, really? You really well, then want put them all on there. apps in the App Store? How about this new xCloud app? Why haven't you allowed this into the App Store, Tim? Tell me right now. I have you cornered. This was a literal lie you told the Congress. So this is a problem. Yeah, I don't know what he's trying to pull because it, yeah, antitrust all the way. Because Apple isn't that great with gaming. They never have been. Apple Arcade, I'm sorry, is a joke. Nah. It's You're paying a subscription service that doesn't add a lot of games and the games aren't great. They're just no. kind of more or so slightly higher, higher than normal quality mobile games. Yeah, if that. Before I go into more incoherent ranting about just how silly this all yeah. is, I'm just going to cut myself off. I, I mean, I do want to hear this at some point. Yeah, I just, you know, if I just start saying random stuff, it's going to be, it might be incoherent, it might be wrong. Yeah, you're not, you're not ready for it. And we can talk about probably more important things as well. That was just a little mini update on the whole App Store and Microsoft debacle with the state of everything that Apple is doing wrong right now. So let's go on to more positive topics. This is more of just kind of a, I really like this as a system administrator. It's a wonderful tool. Probably doesn't get enough praise, at least in the mainstream spotlight. We're talking about Robocopy, folks. Robocopy is amazing, to put it in layman's terms. So Robocopy is a command line version of copy, effectively. It has had several iterations throughout the years, has been mostly the same in terms of its syntax and its functions. It's gotten nothing but additions over the years in the various operating systems that Microsoft has put out. Basically, can copy files with tons of different verification methods and processing efficiencies that you don't normally get through the standard Windows copy dialog or even standard copy commands via PowerShell or what have you. It can give you options such as only copy differential files to save not only on bandwidth, but data raw, well, data and bandwidth transferred kind of goes hand in hand, but it can also give you options such as retries. It can transfer over spotty VPNs where the connection may go up and down and be able to validate that your files and folders made it over with no problems. It provides logging functionality and it can give you multi-thread options. This is really nice if you just want to give more power to the program or give more CPU threads or anything like that to just get your data copied faster as opposed to just one size fits all option. Robocopy gives you tons and tons of configuration items. I'm running out of words for this. My basic question is why is this not just part of the GUI by default in Windows? This should really just be the standard copy dialog, if anything, but just default options. But I would love if this was expanded upon and made into a GUI element. It really helps with copying of lots of data in general. That's really all I want to say about it. Just Robocopy is amazing. If you're not using it in scripts or whatnot, you should really consider moving over to it. Robocopy. The standard syntax takes a little bit of getting used to overall. It's really easy to screw something up and have it just kind of spit out a, I don't understand what you're talking about, or I don't get the path that you fed me. But once you kind of get a real good grasp of it, it is something you will not want to live without. Robocopy is wonderful. I would highly recommend it. It's magic. Absolute magic. Magic. No, it's pretty awesome. And I agree. Why isn't it in the default GUI? Like Microsoft has it so well detailed, like documented and detailed. And they're just like, this is amazing, but you have to go here to download it. And then you're just like, but why? Robocopy is actually built into the OS. You don't have to download it. Is it it. built into it? I haven't used it 
much, to be perfectly honest. But is it just not in the GUI or? There is just no GUI. To get a GUI see, for so it's it, all... to get a GUI for it, you have to go out and find it somewhere. Something, some guy may have wrapped a quick like VB GUI around. So that's whatever. what I was looking at. It was a VB GUI. It was like, here you go. For those of you that don't know how to read me. It's all right. If you want <laughs> it's it. All right. So <laughs> I'm trying to give okay. you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I, I appreciate you, Steve. I do. <laughs> oh. Yeah. oh, my God. Thank you. Moral support. <laughs> Absolute moral support. So as an example, if you want to simply copy a folder with mostly default options, my go-to is robocopy c colon whack folder name and then both these paths are in quotes then you type a space do quotes type your destination path and your final part of the path should be the name of the folder you want the target data to go into then you do a forward slash mir and a forward slash eta the forward slash mir switch in particular can be dangerous if the destination already exists however a good practice of robocopy is just make sure that destination does not exist then you'll be fine mir can have a lot of warnings stating that there'll be data loss if you screw it up but my general rule of thumb is just make sure the destination doesn't already pre-exist and you should be just fine as with everything always be sure to test 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 this don't take my word for it actually do a couple test runs make sure you get a feel for what the destination is going to look like how the source is read and above all else just ensure all functions yeah functioning robocopy documentation is readily available from microsoft there's a lot of other switches you can perform for more detailed operations such as if you want to copy permissions if you want to provide logging if you want to change your multi-thread options run times retries it's suitable as a backup application as well if you configure it in backup mode and what else can i say about it it's robocopy it's amazing for sysadmins and just power users alike there should really be a power toy made for robocopy i'd say that's brilliant i believe the last ui utility i used for robocopy was rob autocopy i'm not sure if i ever got it to work correctly but it would be awesome if microsoft could make a power toy in the power toys tool That'd set be so for cool. that that would be fantastic that would be pretty cool the power toys they, they keep adding to them too which is pretty awesome the latest thing added to power toys was the color picker which is something i've been looking for for a long time because photoshop kind of had one if you knew the right key combo in the color picker you could pick a color anywhere on your screen but it's nice to just have a power toy available to say hey let's just look at my entire screen right now without having to take a screenshot and grab a color from one particular pixel on the screen get the code for it so i can use it in my web design or whatever and that is my gushing section about robocopy i hope it was coherent it was. It was mostly like 80%, 80-20. No, it was It was like uh, 90, 92.8. 92.8, 80-20. That's, that's good enough in my yeah, eyes. Yeah, it's about the same all over. So let's talk about something else. Something that's all very right. very near and dear to both of our hearts. Things that affect us in our tier three sysadmin lives, particularly if you're an ITIL house, an ITSM house. We're calling this the do's and don'ts of tier one and two support. This is our favorite topic ever. This is how we bonded. <laughs> this is how we bonded. This is how we bonded through strife and through the good times and the bad. Tears. 
So a lot of places you work at, if you're tier three IT and you have a help desk or lower tiered IT, you need to work in conjunction with them. And if you're practicing ITIL, there's a whole escalation model and there should be a service model for how it gets to tier three and all kinds of standards across the industry. A lot of that comes with the territory of there's a lot of good practices you should do if you are in tier one and two IT and you want to look good for tier three or eventually get up to tier three in some way. So having both myself and Tiff have dealt with a lot of Tier 1 and 2 IT in the past in various ways. Tiff, I believe you were a manager for several help desk people. Yes. Yeah, the evening shift, which is always the weirdest shift. People get weird Ooh. after 6 p.m. Yeah, everyone, especially in IT, if you're doing the graveyard shift, that's when you get the strangest people calling in, and sometimes you get the strange people on the other side as well. Mm-hmm. You get it both sides. But everybody starts somewhere, so this is not this is not meant to be a let's dump on Tier 1 people no. session. Tier 1 and Tier 2 IT is very essential to ever, to the success of any organization, and this is more just tips and tricks for... How to make yourself look good as a tier one person, as well as, you know, not waste tier three's time at the same time. So a lot of things, you might say these are obvious, but it's a lot of little gotchas that tend to really slow down our ability to handle tickets at the tier three level, as well as make you look good at the tier one level and make the customer feel welcome and properly handled when it comes to service. So let's get into the don'ts of Tier 1 and 2 IT support. So don't escalate with no details. Don't leave illegible notes. Don't leave too many useless notes. And when I say Mm -hmm. useless notes, it's like post an entire chat log, including the greetings and the copy-paste messages you may or may not be required to put into these chat logs or just all kinds of little offhanded comments. Things like that don't really help us in Tier 3. We like to just get the short and sweet, like, what's wrong? What do we need to do? Don't put the description in the subject either. Yes. (laughs) It doesn't help me. I can't read it. Don't make the ticket title about a thousand Mm. characters long. That is what the detailed description is for. Please, sir or madam. (laughs) That doesn't help me. I don't know what the problem is. There's nothing in the activity. Or just help. Help. Also that. When it comes to escalation, being clear and concise without any extracurriculars is absolutely crucial. Escalating with no details is also something that's really just frowned upon because not only does it not help us, it makes the agent at tier one not look good as well because we're going to be sending it back. We're going to say, why was this escalated with no notes? We don't know what to do with this. We cannot move on this request or ticket with quality unless we know precisely what we're going to need from the customer. We can't just move on an account thinking anything under the sun is wrong. We need to know what we are doing in there. Also list the steps that you've taken. I had a ticket recently that I had worked on where it turned out that the computer object was in fact disabled. However, the person who would have been in charge of doing that or making sure was the one who escalated the ticket. So I started working backwards, assuming that it was already, that that had already been checked and spent several hours trying to reverse engineer something that was as simple as the on-premise object being disabled. Right. Because I didn't think to look there because it was an assumption that by the time it got to me, that would have already been looked at. Even the simple act of like clearing cash and cookies, Mm -hmm. like we need to know like what has already been done in the troubleshooting process before we even get to it because that might affect what we think we need to do in terms of the whole resolution. Because 
Because the idea is that once it gets to tier three, that a certain set of steps have been already accomplished. I think probably just as a random anonymized example, I think the most recent, one of the most recent tickets I had was a customer had called in and they had stated that their email was not working. They said that it was just garbled. They were unwilling to use Outlook. They only want to use OA, but they were getting no CSS elements loaded in their browser for OA. A screenshot was provided by the tier one agent, and I could clearly see that something was not loading. But what I didn't see was notes saying, did you clear cache and cookies? Did you try a different browser? Have you checked if the network involved is blocking OA in some way? Are they on a VPN? All these little things that would really be helpful in determining if it's an account-based problem or a local endpoint or local network issue that really impacts our ability to resolve this ticket and the speed, you know, the the time to resolution, especially with SLAs. Nope, it happened. All of the examples. And especially what even makes this more ring true is there is the ITIL model of the higher you escalate up the chain, particularly tier one, tier two, tier three, if you can imagine a bell curve graph. So on the y-axis, we have the cost. On the x-axis, we have the tiers. So we have the tier one of IT, which starts as a low cost. As you go more up the chain, you are involving more resources in the infrastructure that may be pulled off of projects or pulled Mm -hmm. out of other important meetings that are impacting the whole organization for your ticket that you are now escalating. If you are escalating a a low-quality ticket lacking critical details, you are literally costing the organization money by sending up your shoddy ticket, and then one of us has to come out of our project lead because operations is above everything else in a lot of situations. It's so true. I was just having this conversation with someone today who they work on a development team, so their perspective was very different because I find it very difficult when I tell people that I work in operations and I say, oh, you know, if, a, if a, an operational ticket or an emergency pops up, my project still needs to get done. So sometimes I'll have to work nights and weekends to offset that. And they're like, well, Tiff, it's about time management. And I was like, no, in operations, like you sign up for work, like you know that you're getting into the possibility of working more than 40 hours for multiple weeks in a row. And this concept was very difficult and this is not the first time I've gotten into it with someone about this where they're like well then it's management's fault because they obviously didn't hire enough people or enough people who have that skill and I'm like well operations is an overhead but going back to your point Steve that if tier one and two are not troubleshooting and triaging these tickets correctly that does take away it's not that management didn't plan enough team members or anything among uh, along those lines it's that in that ecosystem somewhere along the line something did not quite flesh out correctly because we're not supposed to have those flexes where it's consistently working multiple hours extra to make up that clearly says that somewhere in the process something's broken right exactly it's not to say tier three is not without fault in assisting with oh, tier no. one so we mess up all the time Particularly, you need to have a solid knowledge management system for tier one that tier three must be involved with in order to empower the tier one, tier zero, tier two, whatever other tiers to resolve these issues at the lower cost level defined by ITIL. So it's not, you know, again, just to kind of bring it back to this is not meant to be dumping on tier one. This is not just a, hey, don't do this. Don't do this. You suck. Don't do this. No, this is everyone must be involved in making this system click. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Everything tier one must be responsible for, us at tier three must also be responsible for. Yes. 
but just understand there are pieces to this puzzle that all must work in a cohesive manner. Well, having worked in all of the tiers, I understand the mindset of each one. So in tier one, you think you understand what tier three is doing and you're like, oh, it's so easy. All they have to do is this, this, and this. And then you get to tier two and you're like, well, it's moderately easy, I guess. And then you get to tier three and you're like, holy cow, can anyone do anything right, including myself? (laughs) Exactly. So a little day in the life of a tier three person. (laughs) Yeah. Um, <laughs> Let's say I'm on a couple of projects. I'm on a couple of email cleanup projects, or maybe I'm on a security review or an AD cleanup initiative. All these sorts of things are kind of operations must also, it's only an eight hour day. I need to spread out my time. I need to also ensure that the place isn't actively burning down with incidents or requests that come up our way. If I have a queue full of a bunch of tickets that I can't really parse, but I still need to triage because they made it up to my queue and they are not clear enough, concise enough, I am then spending more time out of my day to try to make sure that the customer is satisfied and these incidents are resolved, as opposed to working on that big AD cleanup project that might help out our Azure migration or uplift, lift and shift kind of things. So it all works like that. It needs to all click and be efficient. So things that can really help at the tier one and two level when you're escalating is make sure you're asking the dumb questions, no matter how dumb they are to the customer. Just try to think of everything. You know, if someone is asking they need access to a share drive, who is it that needs access? Can you scope out this drive in the first place? Do they already have access? Has there been prior precedent with this person? Is there manager approval? All these little things. It Mm -hmm. takes a bit of detective work to try to nail down a process like this. And perhaps your knowledge management team or system can also assist in writing all these steps, these little tips down for you as well. But all this really helps when it comes to escalation because if you've done all that and you've determined oh all I need is access to this share the manager did approve it because I asked and got it and here are other members of their team that have similar access as a model that really helps me out that means I can just kind of go in and out set the permissions and have a nice day oh yeah and similar for instance as well this is not just request this is it's any kind of operational item that gets escalated up you know do things like if it's troubleshooting you got to check the network ping things check their account most folks have read access to Active Directory in their organization unless it's been really, really locked down. So you can check things like, is their account disabled? You can read a lot of the properties. And I'm trying to remember if there's anything else. All these little things, they help at the end as dumb and insignificant as they all may seem. Of course, if you need to, you can always take screenshots or Google it. That's always immensely helpful. That is true. You know, it sounds trivial, but sometimes the easiest answer might be available online and answered a thousand times previously. Don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. Exactly. Screenshot the whole page too. That's really super helpful. And if it's something like share drive paths, try not to just like get it in the screenshot, like type it out and include <laughs> it in plain text so it's yes. copy paste friendly and human readable. Some of the things I always find funny is if they do like a single status screenshot in OneNote where it's trunk where the path is truncated. Oh I yeah. I can't read that. I don't know where no, that path is going. I, I'm not a mind reader. Uh my favorite one, again not dumping on tier one, is when they're like someone lost access to the Z drive. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. 
Like, basic things like you do understand a Z drive is often a maps network drive and not a physical right. disk. And this Z right. drive may point to different things on different endpoints. Exactly. Give me the path. I need the whole thing. The actual full UNC path. If you send that to mm-hmm. me in tier three and say only Z drive, I'm sending it back down saying, please get the full path to the actual shared yeah. drive. That's going to cost time. It'll mm-hmm. cost the customer will be frustrated. All of this factors into the master equation. It absolutely does. Your SLA also may suffer as a result. Really? That things like that happen in those situations too being in tier three and depending on how overworked your team is with projects and just operations those slas are not going to eventually be met so that keeps have to like if the ticket keeps getting bounced back to tier three eventually it kind of just gets stuck in the minutiae from experience i won't say i do this it becomes less of a priority in my mind or in my theoretical mind yeah if, if push comes to shove and you have a pile of things yeah it's it's going to get knocked down the chain a couple of levels and i understand that that's sort of disturbing to the user but at the same time i've had other users or other things that need to be serviced in their proper sla that may may unfortunately be priority to the business or to a different user and impact them so it's unfair to bump up someone else's ticket because the information wasn't correct. Yes. And it sounds horrible. I feel like I'm a terrible person, but <laughs> but if you give me the information, the first time I'll get it to you back. So that is the little spiel, the do's and don'ts of tier one and two IT support, how it links with tier three and the overall ITSM, ITIL ecosystem of sorts, and why these details are important, why it is crucial to not only look good for possible paths to getting to tier three IT, being such verbose and detailed and concise, but it also helps the business as a whole because you're reducing costs by reducing time and effort needed to process these operational items. Mm-hmm. Facts. So yeah, I feel good about that. I feel like that was not terribly ranty. Um, yeah, I, th- I think I think we covered all the bases, and I'm sure I'll I'm sure I'll think of stuff later. But I th- I'm feeling good that we've covered a lot of the core items that we wanted should, to discuss. We should make a blog post on this. I feel like this is a good one that we can keep adding to. Yeah, I found one particular good article and it's in the show notes from thinkhdi.com that kind of explains the tiered support structure a little more and we kind of paraphrased it here it's definitely a good read for sure and a lot of these are based on standard itil it infrastructure library practices and we could we could talk all day about how all that is set up and everything but that's the general kind of the the elevator pitch for ITIL escalation practices. I think we are about ready to move on. Yes. All right. So we've we've made it this far. So this week's this this that that is accurate. Wow. Talking. Wow. Did you know, Steve? Alaska is the only geographical state whose name can be typed on the keyboard using only one row. Wow, man, where did you find this fact? This is now I'm like <laughs> looking at my keyboard. Trying to... <laughs> the internet. Utah. Yeah, Maine. no, now you're gonna be trying it. Maine. Oh. I even tried to like wow. Hawaii. Nope, that doesn't. Nope, this doesn't work. Nope. W's on the other row. No. Short. Ohio. No, not even. No, Ohio. you can't. It doesn't work. Wow. Okay. Well, that I don't know how useful this fact is, but <laughs> if you're talking accuracy, we can't get much more accurate than that. Alaska you, is... It's not called this is helpful or useful. It's that is accurate. Okay, I do have one <laughs> hole that can be poked in this theory. This okay, will fine. Not, I, will this, this will not work on a Dvorak keyboard, I don't believe. Well, this 
this is not about, this is your regular standard QWERTY keyboard. So this is accurate for a QWERTY keyboard. I don't know about a Dvorak. Oh, sorry. You had to go and poke holes in theories. And okay. uh, and actually an Azerty, an Azerty Oh, keyboard. will you stop it? You know, that's, that's closer to QWERTY, but the A is moved to a different row. So technically, but we, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass. We'll say that is accurate for the QWERTY keyboard in particular. Oh my God. You just don't like being wrong. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be wrong. I was just thinking this out loud. I'm just, I'm just giving you a hard time stopping <laughs> things out loud. Okay. Do we I could have get... to engineer everything? <laughs> <laughs> we could, I could start, you know, I could say like, I don't know if other language keyboards other than that even get any more crazy, but I digress. I won't, I won't, I won't. <laughs> beat this you're, you're gonna start anymore. thinking about all the other keyboards now and <laughs> you're not gonna be able to stop thinking about it i won't no it's gonna bother no. you it's gonna plague you yep as most things do <laughs> all right this week's question of the week how do you organize your piles and piles of emails that's a loaded question it is loaded i it depends on the week. I kind of live and die by inbox rules, and my I inbox do. rules are a total, total bomb, shelter, explosion, <laughs> site, ground zero. Yes, duck and cover. I actually had to go into office to exchange online and expand my rules quota. That was how bad my inbox rules have gotten. Ooh. I think the default is what, is it 128 or, or 256 kilobytes? Something like that for your- Something like that. I just know I had to expand it to the maximum allowed by exchange. Oh, no, it's 128 for rules, I believe. Is it 128? So yeah, yeah, you had to make it bigger. I had to make it bigger and I think Microsoft limits it to either 256 or 512. Yeah, I had to expand it because I have a lot of specialized inbox rules that try to file these emails into certain folders. And and I get mm -hmm. so many emails of different categories that it's starting to get. It's starting to blow out the actual technological limit for inbox rules as set by Office 365. It's kind of upsetting because there's some that slip through the cracks no matter what and always end up in my inbox and I have to manually triage them. I get a lot of email. Mm. I really don't like getting a lot of email. It's a lot of alerts for whatever system feels like alerting that it yeah. sneezed that day. The alerting is probably the most obnoxious. Yes. Or things like SNMP, just kind of I'm alive trap messages. Mm -hmm. Or like your listserv digest or proof point or Office 365 sender restricted. I don't know. Stuff I get literally yeah. all day. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's so true. Uh, I I honestly have inbox rules, but I also have tons of folders. I do too. I really hate folders and emails, to be honest. I know. The one thing I, I loved, I really love labels in Gmail because they're not so folders. They're conceptual, they're conceptual organization units for emails and an email can belong in more than one label. The thing that annoys me though is Microsoft has categories in Outlook and that's kind of okay, but categories have always been a little bit sketchy in terms of whether or not they sync to the cloud and whether or not they'll retain across computers or if Outlook clients will remember them or if OWA interprets them differently, whether or not you can do search folders. A lot of search folders don't carry up to the cloud. They're only local and outlook it's really frustrating i really mm -hmm. wish that categories would be expanded in the office 365 ecosystem to be even half as good as what gmail's is but gmail is such like for business stuff i don't like it as much oh yeah let it be known i, I moved away from gmail but the thing i missed the most about gmail was the label system and i can't find an email system that really matches it no protomail kind of has labels to an extent microsoft has the category system icloud has nothing what else 
else? The other major ones. I don't really use any other major email providers other than those. Comcast.net, I guess. But Comcast.net doesn't have anything. That's true. Does anyone even use that? I have a Comcast address only because I subscribe to Comcast, but I just forward it out to my main email address. I don't even use it. I honestly have one, but I I don't touch it ever. Yeah, it doesn't receive email. Or if it does, it just gets mm. funneled somewhere else. It's all junk. Junk mail. Mostly junk. All the junk. All the junk mail. Well, that does conclude this week's episode. Wow. We we did it again, Steve. Right right on the money. We, we do tend to talk a lot. This concludes this week's episode of Hope This Helps. You can rate us on iTunes or you can check us out at hdhpc.com. Uh, someday we will start actually populating that with more material someday i added a nice little search bar to the website i know i saw that today i was so happy it actually functions well that's for when we have more content but all of our episodes are up there we are moving along pretty fantastically anyway thank you hhpc.com that's uh where you can check us out read some stuff uh listen to us talk about other stuff and yeah smash that subscribe button yeah smash it smash it it. smash it but don't break it smash it but don't break it you break it you buy it all right till next week bye